thanks a lot, Stacy, for organizing this wonderful workshop. Um, for the sake of time, what I will do today is, is go straight to two questions that are sort of specific questions, um, but the ones that I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so one, the first one is the question whether with the static adjectives, things like beautiful, we have something like an experience or argument in the, in the structure of the adjective, the way uh, we arguably do with predicates of personal taste, things like boring or tasty. And the second question that I want to look at is the relationship between aesthetic judgments and evaluative judgments. Um, so it's from a, like a broader interest in evaluativity. Uh, so obviously not all evaluative judgments are aesthetic, uh, but the more interesting question is whether all aesthetic judgments are evaluative, that I think many people do. Um, what I would like to suggest uh, in uh, today in the talk, and a lot of this is actually work in progress, very tentative, is that when it comes to both questions, uh, the answer is negative. So uh, that aesthetic adjectives uh, don't come, or don't necessarily come with an experience or argument. And also, I will try to suggest that we can have aesthetic judgments that are not evaluative in the sense that I will um, make more precise. So um, the plan for today's talk, uh, there will be three parts. So just to situate those two questions, what I will start uh, with is um, a certain um, account of predicates of personal taste, uh, since the workshop is also about disagreements about taste, um, present this sort of approach, and then um, uh, try to see whether the, the same type of approach, which is a contextualist approach, um, uh, should be run for aesthetic uh, predicates. Um, so the second part, in the second part, I'll discuss some differences between aesthetic predicates and, per, and predicates of personal taste. P PT stands for predicates of personal taste. Um, and uh, so what I will try to suggest is that aesthetic adjectives either don't come with an experience or argument, uh, and when they do for other reasons, often morphosyntactic reasons, the experience or argument is not, uh, does not play an interesting role uh, for aesthetic judgments. And then I'll close with uh, this uh, very tentative and possibly a somewhat controversial idea that uh, some aesthetic judgments need not be evaluative. Okay, so. Um, talking and disagreeing about taste. Um, so um, let's, let's look at the particular example. This is a kind of example that, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the discussions in philosophy of language, have generated really a lot of literature. So the so-called um, uh, cases of faultless disagreement uh, over matters of taste. So imagine two people who are playing a certain game. Um, one says this game is very exciting and the other one says, no, it isn't, it's boring. And the reason why people are interested in this kind of cases is that you have this, um, at the same time, two intuitions, one namely that they disagree, one says it's exciting, the other says it's boring, but that if the game is exciting to a person, how can this person be wrong in saying that the game is exciting? So the second intuition is the faultlessness intuition that, um, even though they disagree, both of them are right. Okay, so that's the kind of taste, uh, the kind of um, cases that uh, has been discussed a lot. 
Um, and um, and I have an old paper on on these discussions. But what uh, I want to get from this, like the, the previous work on predicates of personal taste, is really the kind of positive approach that I think should that that I would like to defend when it comes to predicates of personal taste. So it's a form of contextualism. It's a contextualist approach. And let me give you uh, the intuition be, behind. Uh, this kind of semantic approach. So when you look at uh, exciting and boring, um, so the intuition is that things are not just exciting or boring simpliciter as it were, because for something to be exciting, there should at least potentially be an experiencer, so uh, somebody to be excited, a person for whom the game is exciting and similarly for boring. So that's the intuition, the way that gets cashed out in, uh, in, uh, in philosophy of language and also in a semantic account is that even though a predicate like exciting looks like just a one-place predicate, underneath it's really a relational predicate that has an argument for the experiencer that is uh, there uh, in its structure. Now, there is a lot of debate as to what, where precisely we get this argument. Is it there in the syntax? Is it somehow not... Uh, visible in the syntax, but only underneath in the in the uh, lexical structure of the predicate. Uh, so let's put uh, that aside. Now, one important thing about the kind of contextualism I, I like to defend is that the kind of value that this hidden experiencer argument may take isn't necessarily the speaker. So if I say that the game is exciting, it's, it doesn't mean necessarily that I'm saying that the game is exciting for me and that the speaker is going to be the value assigned to the argument. It's a much more flexible view uh, where uh, you can have uh, a value assigned to the experiencer argument that's uh, a larger group of experiencers. And importantly, uh, so the, the experiencer argument can also uh, be bound by uh, covert generic operators. So I think that in cases where you're making a general judgment, for instance, about board games, uh, you also um, are likely to elicit the generic reading of the experiencer argument. So if you have something like board games are entertaining, so it's about board games in general, and so the suggestion is that there also the, the hidden experiencer is going to be generically bound. So that's what the, uh, this uh, somewhat simplified um, formal rendering uh, tries to do um, is um, like give you this reading of uh, board games are entertaining, um, where the experiencer uh, gets this uh, also this generic reading. Okay. Now, um, so one of the advantages of this approach is precisely when it comes to the cases of faultless disagreement that we saw. Uh, so what's, I think, really nice about this approach is that it, um, it explains what's happening in, in those cases. So what I have been defending is that when you have just a, uh, a dialogue of the form, this game is exciting, no, it isn't, um, uh, at the face value, you don't really know what's happening in this sort of dialogue, whether it's really a disagreement or whether it's something else. And my, my proposal was that... Um, so in some cases, in some contexts, 
Uh, so two people disagreeing whether the game is exciting are likely, well, initially disagreeing, are likely to step back and just withdraw to their own personal uh, report of experiencing, uh, of the experience they are having of the game so that the person who says this game is exciting and the next step is going to, to, to say, well, I find it exciting. Um, and that in other cases, uh, like a potential disagreement actually resolves into a full-fledged genuine disagreement where people go on um, uh, and um, uh, give, give arguments to defend um, their position. Uh, so the way this kind of contextualism accounts for a full-fledged disagreement is that, so in the case taste, you do have an experiencer argument. The experiencer argument gets something like a generic reading. So the two people who are disagreeing, only one of them can get it right, and you get full-fledged disagreement. Now, there is still a residual problem, and I think that's the one that's got a lot of attention, at least in the literature on contextualism and relativism, namely how even in this case where you get full-fledged disagreement, so we are no longer uh, getting, so as it were, the subjectivity about one's experience is uh, taken out of the semantics. Um, so we have a genuine disagreement and what's gonna settle this sort of disagreement. So there are various proposals that have been made. Maybe Tim uh, Sundell is going to talk about that today uh, as well, but some people, so relativists want to say that we have relativity to some assessor. Uh, other people who are contextualists want to say that there is something like a meta-linguistic negotiation about what the appropriate standards are. Now, the, the proposal that I've sketched about the, the semantics and the presence of the experiencer argument is one that is neutral with respect to the question of how you exactly explain disagreement in the difficult cases. Okay. Um, maybe I'll just get some water. So. Okay, so um, given this background, it's a bit fast, and I'm sorry that I can't get into more, more of the details, but so that's the sort of approach that I think is really plausible for predicates of personal taste. And now the question that I want to address is whether um, aesthetic adjectives are very much like predicates of personal taste, namely such that you get an experience or argument, and um, uh, I would like to say, to, to, to look at the differences, and they're going to be a bit complicated, but so the question is gonna be, do we have something like an experiencer with predicates like beautiful? So, um, testing for the experiencer argument. Now, the, um, the question of how you decide whether you have something like an experiencer argument uh, associated with the predicate is notoriously difficult, and there have been a couple of tests proposed in the literatures so um, there are two main tests, I think. Um, the first one is the question whether it even makes sense to articulate explicitly the experiencer. So um, here you can compare two uh, cases, one where you say the game was boring to Aisha, which is completely felicitous, and here what the, uh, uh, the phrase to Aisha does is um, um, articulate explicitly the experience or argument that comes with boring, but 
if you say something like the statue was beautiful to Aisha, that is arguably less felicitous, uh, which might suggest that the, the, this infelicity when beautiful to someone um, uh, shows that there isn't an experience or argument, otherwise you could just uh, articulate it. Now, um, the things are a bit tricky because um, the intuitions are not solid, and definitely when you use, for instance, a two-phrase or a four-phrase, um, and the beginning of the sentence, maybe the, the, the things improve, so you can say things like, um, uh, to Mary or for Mary, the statue is beautiful or was beautiful, but what happens there is that there is this, um, this ambiguity also with the two phrases is that the likely reading is not that of uh, articulating the experience or argument, but rather um, it's interpreted doxastically as meaning in Mary's opinions, uh, the statue is beautiful, so that blurs the, the applicability of this test uh, to um, um, uh, to the two aesthetic adjectives. So the suggestion that I will make and I will, I will come back to it is that when aesthetic adjectives like beautiful take a two phrase, uh, either it's because the two phrase is interpreted in this doxastic sense, namely in somebody's opinion, um, or else we actually get to um, somehow, as it were, um, put built an experience or argument to the adjective, uh, but then the statement that we will have is not really going to be an aesthetic judgment, but one really reporting uh, an experience. Um, so hopefully that will be more clear as I repeat it a bit later on an example. Now let me move immediately to the second test that people have been using, which is the question whether you can embed a predicate under find. So the, the embeddability with find, it's not only to test. Um, um, so the, the suggestion that uh, Zabo uh, made um, in the paper was that uh, that kind of test um, um, uh, makes it possible to distinguish predicates that don't have any form of subjectivity from predicates that are subjective. Okay? Uh, so here what we might compare is things like, I find this game boring, which is perfectly felicitous, uh, but if you use a predicate like outdoor, uh, you can't really say things like, I find this game outdoor, or I find tennis outdoor, it's not, it's not felicitous, it can't be uh, used to uh, say that I, I mean, you can say, I consider tennis outdoor, or I consider tennis an outdoor game. So uh, now the question, uh, is also whether, so um, what the find uh, test uh, is, uh, the, the interpretation was that there is some form of subjectivity that uh, we get with find, but then the trick issue is what exactly does it show? Does it show something like the presence of an experience or argument or something else? Now, if we found, um, so, so the question then is whether we can find an interesting difference in the application of the fine test between predicates of personal taste where it works perfectly well and the static adjectives. And again, the things are a bit blurry because um, 
aesthetic adjectives like beautiful are not absolutely uh, bad with things like find. You can say things like, I find her pretty, I find her beautiful, but they're also not 100% uh, uh, felicitous. So if you take something like, I find uh, Picasso's Guernica beautiful, that's, um, that doesn't seem, um, the, the best way of expressing your aesthetic judgment, there is something, that's not the way that you would express your aesthetic valuation of Picasso's Guernica by using fine. Um, so um, if, you, if you really want to make an expressive, an aesthetic judgment, you probably wouldn't use the word beautiful to begin with, but um, you would then say that Picasso Guernica is beautiful uh, rather than uh, using the fine uh, expression. Uh, now, um, I also want to mention here some corpus data that Louise McNally has uh, uh, gathered, which also um, revealed that with, with find in the corpora, uh, you don't often find aesthetic adjectives like beautiful and pretty, so out of 2,300 and something uses, there are only four with beautiful and only one with pretty, and it's much more uh, frequent with um, things like difficult, easy, and so on. So, um, so just to, to uh, conclude on this, this test, um, uh, the fact that with aesthetic adjectives, as they occur in, uh, in aesthetic judgments, find uh, doesn't work so well, uh, suggests that uh, there is no experience or argument with the aesthetic adjectives, I think. Um, and then the third kind of evidence uh, on whether you have something like an experiencer uh, might come from some morphosyntactic consideration. So here, um, so it, it's, it's a fact that when you look at adjectives that occur in aesthetic and evaluative judgments, there are a lot and a lot of them that are um, derived adjectives. So here, uh, here is just a list of some examples amazing, annoying, astonishing, disgusting, disturbing, interesting, shocking, impressive, provocative, and so on and so on. So they're um, um, derived, and what happens most often is that the underlying uh, verb from which they are derived is one that it, its thematic uh, structure has an experiencer. So if you look at some event of astonishing, uh, there is no event of astonishing if there isn't an experiencer that stands for the person uh, who is astonished. So that sort of considerations suggest that when you get an adjective that's derived from this sort of verb, the adjective itself uh, should um, preserve the structure and somehow inherit the experiencer argument. Now, if there are also aesthetic adjectives that get this experience or argument just from the verb, then the question becomes whether in their uses as aesthetic adjectives, there is something that happens to the experience or argument. And what I would like to suggest is that indeed, the experience or argument gets either bound generically or even divided from the structure and doesn't play, um, is as it were idle or invisible when we get uh, for a genuine aesthetic judgment. So um, just to recap, what are we to conclude from this? Uh, um, 
that um, so um, as I just said that for a, a range of derived adjectives so we have some morphosyntactic motivations to posit an experience or argument just as we find with predicates of personal taste um, um, but um, and as, as I noted even with uh, adjectives like beautiful uh, and ugly, which are not derived. Uh, so occasionally they, do, they don't do ba bad with the two tests we've seen for experience or arguments. Namely, you can say things like beautiful to me or I find it beautiful. But so the hypothesis uh, that I would like to make is that um, when we have a derived adjective that comes with an experience or argument, when it is used in an aesthetic judgment, the experience or argument is not getting an, any value that's going to impact the truth value, so it's not doing an interesting job. Is that as, if, as if it weren't there. Conversely, when you have a simple, uh, morphosyntactically simple adjective like um, beautiful or fine, but you use it in a fine construction or you use it with a two phrase, so you use it with things that um, course, this adjective to get an experience or argument, uh, the suggestion is that the use itself is more likely to get some, a, a different sort of meaning, namely it will be used to report an experience rather than, uh, than an aesthetic judgment. So to, make, to uh, illustrate this distinction with an example, which will hopefully make it more clear, so um, imagine uh, like the, a performance and there is a dance in Assam, Assam is Bihu. So compare these two um, statements. One, upon the performance, um, I say the dancer performance was moving. Um, and the, the, the one, the case that I want to contrast it with is the, um, the general judgment that the Assam is Bihu dance is moving. Um, so the suggestion here is that in the first case, moving which comes from, already comes with an experience or argument, has one where the experience or argument gets as its value uh, something like the speaker or the, uh, a group, including the speaker who witnessed the performance. And it's not really an aesthetic judgment, it's more like an, a report of an experience, something that's gonna get on the faultlessness side in faultless disagreement cases. When you get to the SMSB who dance is moving, uh, who is it moving to is, is generically close, so the, the, the experiencer is, it could be there, but it's not doing anything interesting, and we get the same adjective um, in what I would like to suggest is an aesthetic uh, judgment about a certain dance. Okay. Um, so the last part, and this one is very tentative, and I, I'm very happy to be able to present it with um, aestheticians in the audience, because my uh, background doesn't involve much of aesthetics. So I, I, maybe I will make some claims that will um, si sound very naive. But um, um, really what I, I'm struggling with in this part is the question of what an aesthetic adjective is. Uh, and what's the relationship between aesthetic adjectives and aesthetic judgments, and how the two relate to evaluativity and uh, evaluative judgments. So um, looking at the list of aesthetic adjectives that uh, uh, 
we get from Sibley, I've um, so I've written, I've, I've uh, copied it here, so we get things like unified, balanced, integrated, lifeless, serene, etc., etc. Now, when you are a philosopher of language or a, a linguist, and you look at this list, one thing that strikes you immediately is that um, not all of the adjectives, actually not even a half, are exclusively aesthetic. So you use them in judgments that are not aesthetic, and there are quite a few in this list who, that have a primary meaning that isn't aesthetic. So things like lifeless, dynamic, powerful, the aesthetic use is the derived one, not, not, the, not the one, uh, not the primary meaning. Um, and um, so Aaron just in, like now in the talk was in reply to a question saying that you get something like an ambiguity uh, between the aesthetic and the non-aesthetic meaning. Um, but, um, and maybe in the discussion you can tell me more about that. What's more puzzling like from me now is, that, is the question of what makes an adjective, if you consider it a single word, aesthetic. So if you just take, um, I don't know, take, pick up uh, any of those, uh, like dynamic, uh, you know, you have dynamic that's just the same adjective, um, like is that an aesthetic adjective and under what conditions? So um, just for like to get things a bit uh, more clear um, for for the, the comparison with evaluativity, uh, like a, a, something of a taxonomic proposal would be that some adjectives definitely, things like beautiful, most paradigmatically, they're lexically marked as aesthetic, so if you use it, it's because you use it aesthetically. And then there are a lot of others that are not aesthetic by, by their nature, but they occur in aesthetic judgments and qualify as aesthetic adjectives in those occurrences. Now, the, the tricky then thing is when such an adjective occurs in an aesthetic judgment, so when do we get aesthetic judgments? So when we apply a lexically marked aesthetic concept like beautiful to anything, to flowers and cars and nature and so on, we have an aesthetic judgment. But also when we judge works of arts, of course, so when the, 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 aesthetic, the, the cause of the aesthetic judgment is as it were because the object itself is aesthetic would be the second kind of uh, case where we also do get aesthetic judgments. Now, um, let's go to a specific case just to make it clear. So, of course, not every judgment about a work of art is an aesthetic judgment. So, um, uh, here is Picasso's uh, Guernica, uh, the, the claim that it was inspired by the events that took place in the Basque Country. Uh, so, we have a work of art but we have a predicate that is non-aesthetic and a non-aesthetic judgment. Um, I should probably add here, so it's not on the example, that we can, we can have evaluative judgments about works of art that are not aesthetic judgments. So if I say that Guernica is worth a lot of, uh, like a lot of uh, money or something like that, it's an evaluative judgment, it's not an aesthetic judgment. So um, uh, 
Now, when we want to look at like typical cases of static judgments, so of course things like Guernica is the most beautiful of all Picasso's paintings, it comes easily on the side of an aesthetic judgment because it has the aesthetic concept beautiful, which is a paradigmatically aesthetic. Now, the, I think the most interesting cases are those where we have, um, well, the, the ones I would like to look at are things where we employ um, an, an adjective that is not aesthetic, so things like Guernica is somber, Guernica is powerful, Guernica is dynamic, and I think these sentences can be and typically would be used to make, um, to make an aesthetic judgments because it's about a work of art, but the predicate itself is not lexically marked as aesthetic. Um, so now, this as as um, just the background to the to to the suggestion that we are then going to get aesthetic judgments that need not be evaluative. Now, evaluativity itself, there is not no consensus on what makes a judgment evaluative, uh, and in the in the philosophical literature uh, coming from philosophy of language and from semantics. People tend also to use evaluative more broadly to mean that, for example, talking about gradable adjectives, some people think that even when it comes to tall, just settling the standard is somehow already an evaluative matter. Now, I think that that's not the, um, really what, uh, the, the use of term that reflects what we want to find with evaluativity, so I'd like to reserve the term of, of evaluative judgment to those judgments where you're assigning a value, positive or uh, negative on a certain scale. Uh, so clear aesthetic, clear evaluative aesthetic judgments are things like Guernica is beautiful, uh, so positively evaluated positively. Um, so the value also doesn't need to be absolute, it can be relative, so if I say Guernica is not as beautiful as I expected, it's also evaluative. I am assigning it a negative value, but not, but with with respect to what was an expected value. Okay. Um, now here they're evaluative because beautiful itself, as an aesthetic adjective, is also lexically marked as a positive evaluative adjective. Now. Um, Things where things get trickier is when we look at a thing like Guernica is somber. So the suggestion is that depending on the context, this kind of sentence can be both a positive um, evaluative judgment, um, but it can also be a negative evaluative judgment. And if the, fun, the interesting thing with somber, for example, is that lexically somber is like more on the negative side, but when you use it, for instance, to a work of art, with the work of art in the appropriate context, Yannicka Somber can express a positive judgment. Um, and this, the, the intuition and the suggestion is that um, you can also make a, uh, an aesthetic judgment like Yannicka Somber that, that is going to be evaluatively neutral so that is not going to be evaluative because it will not um, bring along any value judgment, yet it would still be an aesthetic judgment. Then, of course, the, the, the difficult question is going to 
uh, it comes, the, the difficult question is going to be how to precisely um, delineate this sort of class because if you're using an adjective that doesn't come in its lexical meaning with with an, evalu an evaluativity the way things like good and beautiful uh, do, um, and the judgment itself is not an evaluative, how do you distinguish those from uh, other judgments that are not aesthetic, like um, Guernica is poor in color or something like that. Which of, I mean, that one can be used in, as, as an evaluative judgment, that's not uh, the issue, but you, it can also be used just as a, uh, a statement of fact, as it were, um, a factual description. Okay, so I'm um, on to, the, to some concluding remarks. Uh, just to recap what I uh, tried to do is I started with a contextualist approach to predicates of personal taste, um, and then pointed out some motivations uh, that suggest that there is a difference between predicates of personal taste, which are the ones that are mostly discussed in the, in the semantics and philosophical literature. So if there hasn't been uh, so much attempt to apply those uh, accounts to aesthetic adjectives, maybe that's also good because I think that the two don't, uh, don't function exactly the same way. Um, so. Um, what I've suggested also is that when aesthetic adjectives do involve some non-idle experience, so, so remember that some of the aesthetic adjectives just because of their morphosyntactic structure might come with something that's like an experiencer, but then uh, in, if used in aesthetic judgment, the experiencer uh, fades away, as it were. Um, what I've suggested is that when they do involve a non-idle experiencer, then the, the kind of judgment we have is, not, is more likely to be understood as a report of an experience rather than a genuine aesthetic judgment. Um, and then um, uh, in the third part, so there were some suggestions as, as to distinguishing adjectives that are lexically aesthetic uh, from others that are not lexically marked as aesthetics, but they're omnipresent in aesthetic judgments, um, and gave some uh, uh, reasons for thinking that not necessarily all aesthetic judgments uh, are ipso facto value judgments, so not necessarily evaluative. So I will stop here. Thank you.